Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So pretty much everything comes to an end sooner or later. It could be a television series or a movie. could be a piece of music. could be a sports career. Endings are baked into reality. We're going to talk about that on this show. We're going to talk about endings in all of those different formats and genres. There are good endings. There are bad endings. And pretty soon I will stop talking and this billboard will end. going to play music today with just the endings, contrary to our ordinary practice. I think with one exception today, all the music that we would play will just be the endings of songs. That's kind of an example of how popular music used to end. A popular song would end on a beat. Uh, it didn't fade out over repeated hooks because the technology didn't exist. And also, because most popular music was played by dance bands, people have to know when to stop dancing. Uh, it appeared in, in stage shows and in movies. Um, there were like a lot of reasons why <laughs> it made sense for the, that it to end that way. It doesn't end that way so much anymore. But music is going to be at the end of the show, I think, in the television-watching world. There's probably a German word, angst, you know, anxiety about endings, because we've been hurt and bruised before. Lost might come up in the conversation today. So might Game of Thrones. Some people would bring up The Sopranos uh, in that conversation. I would not. In fact, with that in mind, and to inspire you, and to make you think of the way that shows have ended in the past, Jonathan McPants has provided the following montage. Honey, <coughs> honey, wake up. You, you won't believe the dream I just had. Mm. <laughs> but don't you want to hear about it? The second button is the key button. It literally makes or breaks the shirt. Look at it. It's too high. It's in no man's land. Haven't we had this conversation before? You think? I think we have. Yeah, maybe you have. Sorry, we're closed. I think what I was feeling was best expressed in the lyrics of that wonderful old song. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. This is Kurt Baxter saying good night and good news. How's he been to give you any trouble? He's been sitting there ever since you left this morning. Just like he does every day. World of his own. 
Look, I know how tough it is for you to say goodbye, so I'll say it. Whenever I see a big pair of feet or a cheesy mustache, I'll think of you. Whenever I smell month-old socks, I'll think of you. So you heard little bits of the endings of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Newhart, Seinfeld, Cheers, Seen Elsewhere, MASH, and The Sopranos. Anyway, let's get going with our guest. Uh, Rebecca Mackay is author of the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award finalist, The Great Believers, among other books. Her newest book is I Have Some Questions for You. She is artistic director of Story Studio Chicago, and very relevantly, she uh, has a much-read series of substack entries called Let's End Things, about how authors and creators end things. Jen Cheney is the TV critic at Vulture and New York Magazine and the author of As If, The Oral History of Clueless. So, well, Welcome to our show. And so, Rebecca Mackay, kind of on a general level, you know, I don't know, John Irving used to say that he always wrote towards a final sentence of his book. And that way he could take digressions and go off the beaten path and he'd always know where to get back to. But one gets the feeling that authors are a lot more excited about how they begin their books. <laughs> you know, a screaming comes across the sky. All right, I'm going. Let's do Gravity's Rainbow as opposed to what they're going to do at the end. Can you talk a little bit about the psychology of endings and their creators? Definitely. Well, yeah, like it's a lot more, you know, it's a lot easier to learn how to fly the plane than to learn how to land the plane, right? And uh, I, I actually think the shorter something is, the harder it is to end. You know, a short story is hard to end because it feels almost like everything's been a buildup to some kind of final punch. Novel, you could take a couple chapters to wind down. It's going to be fine, right? Um, but I really judge things on how they end. I think we should. Like if if the, the whole thing was a vehicle to get us to the ending, the ending really matters. Um, but I think... Uh, I think a lot of creators, a lot of writers feel like they're just going to kind of stick something on there and, and back out of the room and hope no one notices, <laughs> you know, or they do let John Irving does. Here's the thing. I love John Irving, but I don't love that method. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it works for him. But for a lot of writers, if you know all along where it's going to land, you're not, you know, then are you free to, to change your mind, hopefully, right? Like, if I land where I thought I was going to land, I don't think I've learned that much by writing that story or that entire book. And then, and then what's the point? Right. An author that I've become just ensorcelled by in recent years is Emily St. John Mandel. And she's been on the mm. show and her books are very, have very interesting endings and they, they leave you want, wanting, wanting more, which can be a good thing, but they also leave you, I, I think glass hotel in particular is like someone really artfully leaving a party, just seeing all the right goodbyes, not pulling an Irish goodbye and rushing out without saying anything, not overstaying. I mean, that's a little bit of, <laughs> a, of a trick, too. There's a sweet spot to how you end. Maybe you shouldn't wrap up every single loose end or tell us exactly how the guy who signed, shined the character's shoes you know, in Chapter 3 dies later in life. But you have to tell us something. You just can't walk away. Yeah, right. There, there's that question constantly, that, that pull between – um, really wrapping things up and leaving things hanging. And we, 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 you're right. We definitely don't want either. Absolutely. Once in a while it works. Um, sometimes I think, you know, when I have a, a, especially when it's a writer of serious fiction that I'm working with and they wrap things up and they tell us where everyone goes, I call that an animal house ending. Um, you know, like the end of animal house, they're all going down the street yes. and it tells underneath what happened. Um, 
And, uh, and, and then, you know, the inverse, when it, when things just end very abruptly, I do think of that as a Sopranos ending. Right. Um, I think it worked for the Sopranos. It's kind of a, something you can do once, you know, um, but it, it's, it's tricky, right? You want people to, um, you, you, you leave enough room in their imagination, right? People, I was, as a kid, I always thought that the blank couple of pages at the end of the book were so that you could write more yourself. You can write your own ending, which is actually not the story. That's not, you know, it's because of how books are made, but, but I, I don't think it's wrong. You know, you want just that little bit of the, the consumer can is, is part of the story, right? I'm, I'm never, it, the story doesn't belong to me. The story is a collaboration between me and the reader and the reader needs a little room at the end. Not too much, but a little room. Yeah. So, um, so Jen, I do feel as though there is kind of this little nervous anticipation in the air. Like, is this, are we going to feel good or bad about these endings? I, I feel we have kind of a heightened sense of sensibility about that these days. I absolutely agree with you. And actually, I, I, I'd love to go back to that John Irving comment because I feel like it's very relevant as to why we have developed this heightened mentality. You know, back in the old days, especially on broad, broadcast television, uh, the creators of a show did not always know when it was going to end. Oftentimes, they were writing their season and waiting to find out if they were going to get another season. And they didn't have that John Irving luxury of saying, like, I know what the end is going to be, and I'm going to write to that. And that changed. Uh, specifically, I think it started to change because of Lost. Um, Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse, who were the showrunners, were negotiating with ABC. Like They did not want that show to run for as many seasons as it did. And they ultimately settled on, uh, I believe it was seven, even though they wanted it to be less than that. Um, but I think that opened the door for other creators to start negotiating and saying, hey, I actually want to end this after three seasons. Um, and then we started seeing shorter seasons of television. So it allowed the storytelling to become more concise and purposeful. And because of that, I think viewers now have a really high expectation of a finale because they're like, oh, well, you knew how you were going to end this. So like, what do you got? Like, is this going to be good or is it not going to be good? And, and you know, I agree that finales are important, as Rebecca said, but I also think they do not, uh, you know, they do not define your entire viewing experience. Like I was as disappointed in the last season of Game of Thrones as a lot of people were, but there were people the next day saying, well, this, what a waste of time this was watching this entire show. And I'm like, no, it wasn't because you really enjoyed a lot of it. You had a great experience maybe until the last couple of episodes and that the last couple of episodes doesn't erase how good the show was before that. You're a hundred percent right. Although I think I was a little bit you know, peevish in, in the way that you described. I mean, my immediate reaction was that, that, and this kind of wrap up <laughs> that Tyrion does. It's it's like the two the two Ds the 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 showrunners were saying. Look, we are out of money, and HBO is not giving us any more money. So Tyrion is now going to tell you how this show ends. Um, and I thought, really, that's what that's what I've spent ten years geeking out about. Uh, and, and maybe part of the problem is that we overinvest. You know, I mean, I was overinvested in Game of Thrones. It meant way too much to me. And it ceased to be just a television show. And if that's the case, you start to feel like you're a shareholder somehow in the ending. Right. And, and I think, you know, people did this with Game of Thrones. They've done it with Lost. They've done it with Mad Men, a lot of shows. 
we start to play detective and guess like, oh, this is probably how it'll end. And this is how it might end. And everybody goes on Reddit and start sharing their theories. And while that's a great deal of fun and, and to Rebecca's point, that is a way of, of the viewer being part of the process. Sometimes the viewers have better ideas than the people who wrote the show. Uh, and then you, you're going into a finale with an expectation of what's going to happen that isn't met. And I think, you know, the more that people can enter into these experiences open-minded and just curious to see what happens as opposed to I want X to happen and when it doesn't, I'm mad. I think it just makes for a, just a better TV watching experience. So, you know, to Rebecca's point about the so-called Animal House ending, that can be done very, very well. I mean, a lot of people feel in terms of prestige television that the end of Six Feet Under, where we see the Lauren Ambrose character, Claire, driving out of town, but we're also just projecting forward. We're seeing basically how everybody's lives turn out. And there's this song, Breathe Me, that's playing underneath it. And I, I'm probably in that group that says, OK, that's good. That's I don't know. But Jen, where where are you? I agree. I think that is one of the best, if not maybe the best final ending of a television series, certainly in recent memory. And it's because, and this is so important in terms of a finale, it's not just because they're showing us what happens. They, there's a lot that we don't know in the middle. What we do see is how every major character dies. And this was a show about a funeral home that used to open with the death of somebody and tie it into the broader storyline about the family. So it felt very much in character with what that show was about and, and what its sensibility was. And at the same time, I was kind of surprised by it because I did not expect them to do that. And so it was incredibly moving for both of those reasons. So I think, you know, traditionally you always think what everybody wants is a happy ending. But I don't think that's true. I think I think <laughs> the ending of a show should be in character with what the rest of that show was. And I think, you know, to some extent, that's why people were mad at Lost. A, they wanted answers they did not feel they got. But it was a really emotional and character-driven ending. And for the people who were watching it for the puzzle aspect, it was not satisfying. But the people who weren't as invested in that actually really did like that finale. So uh, it really depends on the mindset and the expectation you come to it with. You know, Rebecca, I wonder also if there's kind of a difference between literature and, and works for the screen in in the covenant between the creator and consumer, the, the value proposition, as they say in business. I mean, as an example, you know, we've talked about some of the endings that people found unsatisfying, although... For example, you know, one of the most beloved endings in television is the second Bob Newhart series where he wakes up in bed with Suzanne Plachette, his wife, in the first Bob, Bob Newhart series. And it turns out he's dreamed the entire time in Vermont. That's really regarded as brilliant. But the value proposition, the covenant was this is going to be funny. You don't have to worry too much about what happens here. There isn't, you know. But I think it's less clear if we sit down with an Iris Murdoch book what exactly kind of deal we have with her. I mean, there's a sense in in literature that the author's going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, there's, you know, there is more work on the part of the consumer in reading um, because, you know, certainly our imaginations can come into play as we're watching something on the screen. But I write a book. I'm giving you, all I've got is 26 characters and a few little dots, right? I am giving you with those the entire world. And what I picture someone looking like is not what you're going to picture. The room I picture, the way someone says something, the mood in the room, it's not what you're picturing. I'm trying to get you maybe as close to what I'm picturing as I can. But fundamentally, reading requires just more of the of the reader than TV requires of the viewer. Um, and, you know, I, I also think at the same time that, um, 
I'm not sure if this is this is uh, backing up your point or contradicting it, but we're, we literature is capable of uh, pulling out the rug from under people in a way that film uh, sometimes can do and sometimes can't do, right? We're reading something and it turns out we're reading something else. Um, we're reading something and, um, you know, the, the point of view switches on us, which is something that would be a little harder to do in, you know, in, in film. Um, so we, you're still capable of these, these big kind of seismic changes in what the narrative is. Uh, it's just less likely to be, for instance, an actual punchline, which is what the ending of New Heart was, which I loved. Um, it, it, I was a kid, you know, I watched that and I didn't know the original, but I still got the joke. Um, and my mom had to explain who Suzanne Plachette was and what, you know, what all this had been. Um, but yeah, you know, and the, uh, you know, we've invested something, invested that much of our own imagination in a book, that much of our own selves in a book, a punchline ending is going to feel even more like a ripoff than it would on the screen. But we're still capable in fiction of the, the absolute game changer ending, the ending that um, goes, you know, everything you thought was true is not true. Uh, what you thought you were reading is not what you were reading. Those those exist out there. You know, and Jen, I also feel as though not every consumer uh, of uh, fiction or or television or movies has the same attitude towards the set of characters. We're all a little bit different in how we view them. I, I thought this was starkly evident. There's sort of a little spoiler coming if you've never seen Breaking Bad. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I discovered this in a piece I wrote for Salon where I explained why Walt had to die because he had become a monster. And it turned out, according to the commenters in Salon, that I was not correct and that Walt was a heroic figure, kind of an underdog sticking it to the man somehow. Uh, and and there's sort of that too, right? There's I, I think that's a little bit of the issue people have with the Sopranos ending. Not just that it goes to black, but that there's certain people who really felt like they need to, needed to see Tony go out in some kind of blaze of glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the Sopranos ending also just left you with a, a sense of uncertainty in general. Um, because it was so abrupt. And as you, I'm sure, remember, people were like, wait, did my TV break in the middle of the <laughs> ending? Uh, so th- that was a factor as well. I, in terms of Breaking Bad, my God, the, the way that people misunderstand that show uh, and and Walt and his wife, is that's like a whole topic for another uh, segment. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I agree with Rebecca that people do engage with books differently. And I think one of the big differences, it's not so much that books that movies and and TV shows can't do a a change because I think they can. Um, I I think that normally when you're reading a book and there are exceptions, you're reading it on your own time. And there isn't this sense that there's like a broader conversation going on that you have to stay like up to date with, you know, there's just a sense of anticipation and, and just cultural conversation around what's going to happen in the ending that you can kind of shield yourself from when you're reading a book and just take it on your own terms and have your own experience and and take as long as you need to read it. That I think is a little bit different with TV, which has become uh, kind of a pressure cooker to keep up with everything that's going on. Oh, absolutely. And and yeah, um, there is that sense of, I mean, we're not all reading Wuthering Heights on the same day, uh, right. you know, <laughs> but there's a way in which there's this kind of communitarian experience of the show. I think that's kind of what you're saying, that, that not only do you have to worry about getting spoiled, being spoiled, but 
There's also this sense that this is all happening for X million people pretty much at the same time. So we kind of need a community. I know you didn't watch uh, Battlestar Galactica, but that was another one that was really upsetting to me. <laughs> but I, I, like, it was because I, I thought I was part of this family of the creators and the viewers and that we had some kind of agreement about what was going on. Right. Absolutely. And I do think that that was true for Lost as well. There's There was a huge community and there still is of, of people who, um, you know, loved that show and felt deeply connected to it on, on a very personal level, like you're saying. Um, so, yeah, we do have an investment in these things, but we also, because they're being talked about, you know, on Twitter and social media and other places, um, we can sometimes let other people get in our head and like amp us up for something. <laughs> I definitely felt that way about Game of Thrones. Like it was like, yeah, it's the big finale. Like it felt like the world kind of stopped so everybody could watch HBO. Uh, and, you know, in a lot of ways, that's a beautiful thing because we do not generally, with the exception of maybe the Super Bowl, watch TV together as a collective unit the way that we used to before um you know, streaming and all these things entered the picture. So I love that we have these moments that are at least somewhat uh, shared, but because of that sharing, uh, it can make you anticipate things in a way that might be a little out of kilter. Yes. For you young people, there used to be a show called MASH. The, the, the <laughs> finale was two and a half hours long and like everybody in America watched it pretty much. So Rebecca, you know, maybe as we begin to wrap up this conversation, although I'd gladly talk to two of both of you for the entire show, but, um, but this, there's a way in which I think, particularly when we engage with a writer, the writer has the opportunity to teach us something with the ending. And, and you know, it works for the screen as well. I, I do think Six Feet Under has something to tell us about life. Sometimes the author just tells us what it is at the end, right? I mean, the last line of Great Gatsby is one of the most famous last lines in literature, and this is this is him just sort of saying, Here, here's what I think this book is about. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, can you just talk a little bit about this? this is, you, you talk about this in, in your work in terms of meaning. Are you going to just tell us the meaning? Right. It's one option. You know, what, one thing I've been doing on my substack is it's sort of almost a, an ongoing taxonomy of endings to say, like, yes. let's look at the way endings deal with sound. Let's look at the way endings deal with meaning. And, you know, it's just, it's a possibility. It's certainly not the way everything ends, but it is a possibility um, in on the page. And, and in film, I think it would be a possibility really only probably with voiceover. This, this very direct, you know, either um, statement of philosophy or the kind of, you know, looking back on it now, years later, here's what I realize about that time. Um, something that uh, it might not be everything, it probably shouldn't be everything. And it might not be exactly the same as the reader's takeaway. And it might not even be the author's takeaway, because probably, you know, it's the character, it's the narrator, if we're talking about fiction. Um, And it could be deeply ironic, you know, the end of 1984 is all about how he loves Big Brother. (laughs) And you're going, oh, no, no, that's not the meaning of the book, even Mm -hmm. though it, it seems like almost an Aesop's fable moral at the end, we know that it's deeply ironic. So it's not necessarily, you know, let me just tell you exactly what I what I just told you. Um, but there's there is a way that that fiction, memoir, poetry can in its last lines just address us really directly um, and and tell us things that, you know, one of the reasons we turn to any kind of good writing in whatever form, whether that's on the page or on the screen, 
is to learn from other humans who have been through life, who've been through either what we've been through ourselves, and we want to hear that reflected back, or they've been through what we haven't been through. And that is a fundamental part of listening, you know, being a human is to listen to those things. So when the, you know, when that experience can be distilled in the last moments, um, that's a wonderful angle to do that from. All right. Well, uh, Jen Cheney, uh, TV critic at Vulture and New York Magazine, send her a care package of coffee and Adderall. She's not going to get much sleep here towards the end of May. <laughs> Rebecca Mackay, author of the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award finalist, The Great Believers. We'll link on our web page to her Substack uh, multi-part series on endings, which is, of course, kind of funny all by itself. But she acknowledges. Uh, all right. We'll uh, take a little break. We're going to come back with Jeff Dyer, who's going to talk about Roger Federer and everything else in the world ending. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So joining us now to talk more about endings, the whole show today is about endings of different kinds, and we were very fortunate uh, that our guest uh, coming up right now, Jeff Dyer, who's written many, many books, I refuse to count how many of them, uh, is the author uh, fairly recently of The Last Days of Roger Federer and other endings, uh, and he's with us now. First of all, welcome to our conversation. 
Thank you, Colin. Let's start with athletes. Um, athletes have a, a, a sort of a different equation. Uh, a, there are just some limitations placed on them by their bodies. Uh, and B, there are people constantly evaluating them. There are metric evaluations <laughs> of how well they're doing uh, that are kind of hard to shake at times. So in a way, it wasn't Federer. It was Andy Murray, really, his tearful press conference that got you thinking about this whole question. Yeah, that's right. That was in 2017, wasn't it? Which uh, is an amazingly long time ago. And uh, yeah, he was. He gave this press conference saying, that's it, really, I'm finished. He said, I'm just in too much pain. And he wasn't referring to the pain of five-hour-long matches. Uh, he, he loves that kind of pain. That's when he's really happy. He was referring to the pain of putting on his socks in the morning, which is for most people, a kind of pain that probably lies in wait for you. You can probably put your socks on quite quite comfortably until you're in your 80s or 90s. So they, as you're absolutely right. They have this accelerated relationship to physical decrepitude quite often as a consequence of having attained such incredible heights of physical excellence. Right. But because we also deify them, we also let them make a lot of these decisions. And so Andy Murray did not, in fact, stop playing tennis at that time. I don't have to tell you that George Best retired, the great footballer George Best, retired twice and I think just showed up for practice at the beginning of the next season with nary an explanation, finally retiring the third time, I think, when he was 37 years old. Because they're gods, they can just kind of do this sort of thing. Yeah, it happens in public. I mean, I'm uh, with George Best. I mean, yeah, he sort of retired in the sense that he retired from playing football, but he retired from football partly so he could give himself wholeheartedly to what turned out to be his real destiny in life, which was to devote himself to, to booze, uh, which, of course, took a terrible toll on him. The thing about Andy Murray, and I think he's representative in this regard as well, is that that farewell speech his retirement was the prelude to uh, what turned out to be a comeback after more hip surgery and you know probably next week he'll be uh, he'll be he'll be still gamely going at it um because uh even though he probably realizes he's not going to win another grand slam it's a question of uh playing tennis which he enjoys, in spite of all his chuntering away uh, when he's on court that seems to indicate the contrary. It's a question of that or what? Well, it used to be the case that when you were a retired footballer, you opened a sports shop or a pub. Now there are certain, there are plenty of other opportunities, but none of them can compare with that excitement and uh, life-defining intensity of, uh, of high, of elite competition. By the way, let's give George Best some uh, credit for uh, one of the great athlete quotes of all time. He said, I spent a lot of money on bro booze, birds, and fast cars. The rest of it I squandered. Uh, yes, indeed. And so, yeah, I mean, those of us who watched the series, Ted Lasso have watched Roy Kent, a fictional footballer, deal with the same question. How do you know, you know, and, and the fans may be telling you to retire considerably sooner than you and your body come to that kind of an agreement. But I think it's also, you can universalize it pretty quickly. I mean, all of us to some degree or other, you and I are both in our 60s, you know, and I'm planning to talk on the radio until someone comes in and takes me gen <laughs> gently by the wrist and says, you know, the listeners say you are not making sense anymore, and we're just going to walk you out to your car, uh, and here's a drink of water. Um, and and be But, I mean, we all have to decide. I mean, for you as a writer— 
it's a little different, but you probably, I mean, you know, Philip Roth at a certain point said, I'm not going to write any more books. Yes, that's right. I mean, the athlete's decline happens very, very publicly, as you were saying. So if you're a tennis player, you've got this ruthless indicator of where you are, the the weekly rankings. And you can see people, you know, you can see people declining. Uh, uh, being a writer, uh, your decline happens by and large invisibly. And for the vast majority, uh, that decline or continued pro- productivity is in either case met with complete <laughs> complete indifference anyway. So we can think <laughs> of examples like Truman, Truman Capote, let's say. Uh, publishers were very enthusiastically hoping for another book. Um, and he strung them along and then he was his brain was too addled to, to manage it. That's uh, I think that's the people like him are the exceptions for for the great majority of, of writers. It's just this uh, the the literary Richter scale doesn't uh, doesn't register any kind of tremor or lack of tremor when when people finally give up. Right. Some of this involves the difference between, well, Chris Rock, the comedian, made a great distinction between a job and a career. He said, I used to have a job. I worked as a dishwasher in a restaurant, and the time passed so slowly to the end of the day. And I checked my watch, and it would be 9.45 in the morning, and I would have re- I realized I would have checked it 10 minutes ago, you know, but I was just constantly waiting for the end. And I think if you have that kind of job and you're unfortunate enough to have it for your entire life, retirement is kind of a a finish line that you're pumping your arms and legs towards. But, you know, Chris Rock said, eventually I had a career and it was more like, is the day over already? There were so many other things I wanted to do, you know, Mm. And, and, and there is, I think, you know, how we regard the finish line, where it is, what it means, whether we're trying to get to it or trying to slow down a little bit so we never break the tape, has a lot to do with how we regard our present circumstances. Oh, yeah. I mean, that Chris Rock line is is great. Uh, but I would take it a stage further, actually, and say, yeah, there's a job and you're really looking forward to that ending so you can get on with, you know, what, what you enjoy doing. But I've always insisted that uh, I've never had a career. Because, but what I have had is a life. And I think one of the nice things about the writing life is that well for a start you just uh you know you you you're doing what you want uh all, all the time but also it's quite interesting this thing of um monitoring the way that your ability to continue writing is sort of you you can you're monitoring how you're doing and your ability to write is so caught up with your ability not to engage in public life or anything like that but your ability to notice what's going what's going on in the world and then of course it becomes this thing whereby okay yes i can still notice things and i still have this power of observation but linguistically are you able to find a way of expressing what you're seeing are you able in fact to articulate this experience which is um universal to everyone who's not uh, who you know as long as you're not uh, so unlucky that you die young this experience of of aging and the kind of wisdom that might hopefully come as as a result of that so to sort of come to elide the chris rock distinctions you know writing it's a it's a job for life Right. And there is that idea, 
even for the athlete, for the for the footballer, there is a wisdom that comes along, a knowledge. It's like I don't have yeah. to run all the way over there because I actually know the play is flowing back into this much shorter place. So you can kind of compensate. But let's talk about what you said too about people who are unlucky enough not to have a late period. Uh, mm. You you write about Coltrane. For me, it's Gershwin. I, you know, I just want. I'm, what is he? Thirty nine. <laughs> I, I want to know what that other thirty years yeah. was going to be like. Uh, and I know you feel the same way about Coltrane. Yeah, I mean, an awful lot of uh, um, work has been done. It's almost an academic cliche now about late style, this idea that there's this kind of phase you come to at the end of your life. And the classic instance of that is Beethoven, where towards the end of his life, he's doing this music which is so far out. It's so... Uh, ahead of its time and also he's pouring into that music all of this kind of wisdom and understanding that he couldn't possibly have had as a as a as a young or even a middle-aged man so that's fairly straightforward late style but an important point i think is that late and last aren't the same thing beethoven's late works are his last works but we can think of all sorts of examples of people whose last period comes in what really if they'd had a bit more biological luck, should have been their middle period. And so Coltrane's last works, done when he's, you know, in his 40s, they seem to me to be the exact opposite of that kind of Beethovenian summing up and uh, uh, sort of conclusiveness. They, they're very obviously transitional works. And I feel there's a there's a directionless uh, in that final stuff of Coltrane where he's trying to work out what to do next. In the same way, I think, with the photographer Gary Winogrand, who, when he died uh, very, very suddenly, like Coltrane, with this massive number of, uh, of pictures he'd made when he went sort of snap happy in Los Angeles, um, the guillotine comes down, as it were, bringing those career, those careers and lives to an end. But they haven't attained a kind of uh, finish or a fruition the way that that was the case, very obviously, for, for Beethoven. Yeah, and I think there's also, and, and you make this point, you, you link Beethoven and Painter Turner to a certain degree. Um, and, you know, both of those guys, one reason they have late periods is because they get old and they're still alive, but also... They're not going to take up yoga or buy a kayak and start, you know. I mean, they're the kind of physically decrepit and, and un, unappealing people who don't get invited to a lot of parties. Uh, and yeah. so what are they going to do except paint a few more masterpieces or write a Ninth Symphony? Yeah, for, for Beethoven and Turner, I think, you know, the, the work that they're producing is a way of redeeming a lot of the shortcomings in the life. And of course, Beethoven's life was, was full of uh, uh, domestic problems. And then there's the huge thing of, of, of going deaf. And as he said, you know, everything outside of music I did stupidly. So there's a sense where in which, you know, Towards the end of his life, music is all Beethoven has. And with Turner, it's an it's a interesting case with regard to Turner. Very, very similar temperamentally to, uh, to Beethoven in many ways. That we now really like those late works of Turner's because they seem proto-abstract. They're just, you know, these washes of light and paint. But then it turns out that actually what one of the things Turner 
shared with Beethoven was this love of money, of always trying to maximize sales. So he started exhibiting paintings that looked proto-abstract, partly because for a very simple reason, oh, because they weren't finished. Uh, and since his death, the unfinished works have been sort of muddled up with ones that were <laughs> finished. So it's possible they only look so avant-garde and ahead of their time because because they weren't they, they, they weren't finished. Well, we're going to reluctantly stop there, but um, but maybe not end. First of all, we're going to um, just keep you waiting to see if Jeff Dyer comes back for an encore. Just keep applauding, <laughs> holding up your lighters and stuff like that. Maybe you'll come back out. You never know when concerts end. Jeff Dyer is the author of The Last Days of Roger Federer and other endings. I hope this isn't the ending of his time on our show. I hope you will come back, sir. But right now, we'll take a break and we'll come back and we will talk more about music. We are back. Time to thank Cat Pastor, our technical producer, also Dylan Ray's very funny billboard music there, Dylan, uh, and Lily Tyson, senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, produced this episode. We're so excited to have back with us because we enjoyed her so much when we were talking about This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You, her book. We have Susan Rogers, multi-platinum record producer, cognitive neuroscientist, professor at Berkeley College of Music, and co-author. I already said the book thing. Uh, okay, so Susan, um, I thought uh, partly for in the interest of time, but also because I think it'll be fun to do with you. Uh, I'm going to play some song endings and just have you talk about them. Um, and the first one is going to be by someone who was very, very important to you, and you were very, very important to him, and that would be Prince. And I'm going to play not one of his really great endings, but um, a song, the ending of a song called It's About That Walk. And you could probably tell the whole story of this. I think he's like really pissed off at his label when he's doing, he's doing uh, this particular album. But what's fun about this, if you're out there listening, you, you can hear Prince yelling out commands, calling out uh, instructions to his studio band in the moment right here. I love that you can hear him laughing there, too. But I don't know, Susan, he's usually much more meticulous about his endings. I love that because it just feels so real and in the moment. Oh, yeah. It's good to hear that. I didn't record that. I, I was, uh, I no longer was working with him at that time. But I know that that, uh, that type of ending was just so very typical of what the band would do live. Prince just loved spontaneous creation. And he was so damn good at it that he might just do something in rehearsal or on stage that just felt right, and he'd be okay with releasing that. And, and you know, if we could talk a little bit about his approach to endings, I think with a song like Let's Go Crazy, we remember the beginning a lot more. We remember that organ, we remember mm -hmm. that whole thing. But talk, talk a little bit about how he thought about endings or, or how much he cared about them. So Prince cared much more about albums than he did about singles. He was almost extraordinarily 
unconcerned with singles. Prince made albums. And in the days of vinyl, when I worked with him, that was a 37-minute long experience. So the ending of each individual song was chosen to be ideal for where that song appeared in the sequence on the album. So what he wanted to have happen, and a lot of artists were like this, is you put the needle down on that record on side A, first song, and you listen to the first side, 17 minutes long, you flip it over, you listen to the second side, and there is your arc, there's your experience. Um, when we were sequencing albums, we played around a lot with the position of songs to make that 37-minute or 34-minute experience ideal. That meant that some songs would have a long fade, a long tail at the end. Some songs might have a crossfade. They'd fade out slowly, and then the second song, the intro of the second song would fade in. And then in other cases, you'd want to break the mood entirely and start over, do an emotional reset, so your song would have a hard end, there'd be a pause of air, and then you come in with your next uh, title. All right, let's switch to a different artist here. Um, by the way, I'm indebted to my brothers in music, Steve Metcalf and Jim Joplin. We had a lengthy text uh, about all this stuff last night. So one thing that came up uh, by a Steve, uh, this is the song Famous Blue Raincoat by Leonard Cohen. Here are the last 44 seconds. And Jane came by with a lock of your hair said that you gave it to her that night that you planned to go clear sincerely El Corn This season, a lot going on there sonically, also lyrically. I mean, sincerely, El Cohen. That's That'll sort of knock you right off your stool right there. But say, say what you hear there. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, music differs from books and television series and films and careers in that the design of a, of a record, a song, let's say, is intended to get you to play it again. <laughs> These are so much shorter. So the ending often it's okay to have an unsatisfying or an incomplete ending because it can help uh, get you to that goal of having your listener want to listen to that song over and over again. So in this case, uh, Cohen is employing the speech prosody technique of kind of just pausing a conversation for dramatic effect and letting you fill in what he might have said afterward. This can motivate you to want to hear that record again. Hmm. That's that's a great uh, yeah. It's it's a record that teaches you how to listen to it again. Um, all right. Uh, this is somebody who I, I think does a lot of interesting things with endings. Uh, his name is Stevie Wonder. You may have heard of him. Uh, this is the end of the song "Superwoman" from Music of My Mind.
He's a national treasure. <laughs> and that sort of long, protracted ending, musically speaking, is kind of designed to get you to savor that feeling. Just hang on. Just stay in that moment for, for just a little bit longer than you normally would. A hard ending here would have worked. It would have worked just fine, but this gives us a different feeling. This this lets us stay there with Stevie in that in that moment, and that's also very effective. All of these are, uh, of course, creative choices. There's no right or wrong way to do it, but you're imagining what the listener might experience, and you're doing your damnedest to give them a satisfying experience. Right. I think the other thing that I hear... This album, the music of my mind, is really kind of you know the sort of the new era uh, of Stevie. He's more in control of his own destiny and what he does. He's playing all of the instruments, I think, except for those delicious guitar solos that are by Buzz Fighton or Dean Parks or somebody, uh, you know. But and and so it's kind of like when and this song is like seven minutes long because it starts out as the Superwoman st- song and then kind of sort of segues into Where Were You When I Needed You and then we have this ending and those little. Bell tower chimes, bum 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 bum. You know, I just what I hear, Susan, is Susie is Stephen saying, "I'm going to end this song when I'm ready." <laughs> you know, I'm not ready to end this song. I've got another idea here. Yeah, that's the artistic prerogative for sure. And in music, we do have that luxury, like Rebecca and Jen were talking about earlier. You know, at some point when it comes to television or film, you got to wrap it up. You got to get out. But with music, there's a you don't have to do anything. Right. We're, we're the looser art form here. So uh, you, you, you trust your instincts. You, you uh, project what the experience might be like for the consumer. You have no way of knowing for sure. But those who are good at guessing what that might be have the longer careers. Right. I mean, music is the, the looser art form now to a certain degree. I mean, I would say, you know, from 1923 to whenever the fade really started to come in. I mean, you know, Irving Berlin had to write endings to songs and, and then Fred Astaire had to sing them because they had to end. Uh, there, there really wasn't really a lot of room, at least within the world of very, very popular music because these songs were used in movies and on stage and they were dance band songs and they just had to end. Whereas, you know, by the time we get to the Beatles, they can really make incredible choices, including John Lennon famously just snipping the tape on I Want You, She's So Heavy, just so it just stops in the middle of nowhere. But yeah. but say more. Yeah, that's a uh, that's snipping the tape. That's to give uh, a, a jolt, of course, of, of dopamine. It's the musical equivalent of the Sopranos ending. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just it just ends. Now, the great thing about that Sopranos ending, in, in my view, is how much time we could spend thinking about what might have happened afterward. How wonderful is that? That means an ending isn't really an ending. That means means that the creation kind of goes on in the consumer's head for longer than the actual work of art was intended to go on. And in, you can, I mean, you can of course, do that musically. You can do a hard, abrupt end. I think we heard something like that with, with the Leonard Cohen in a way, because it was slightly unexpected the way he chose to end this song. And that can leave us... Uh, that can leave us savoring it a little bit longer, or it can put a question in our minds that, again, make us want to play that song over again to analyze it a little further. Well, we're going to have to stop here, although we have a little bit of a surprise ending for you because this is a show about endings. Susan Rogers uh, is the author of the wonderful book. This or co-author, actually, is This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. She's a cognitive neuroscience and a professor at Berkeley College of Music. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more. 
At the end of every day, I drive through the city of Charleston. And as I cross the bridge that'll take me home, I feel the words building inside me. I can't stop them or tell you why I say them. But as I reach the top of the bridge, these words come to me in a whisper. I say them as prayer, as regret, as praise. I say, Lonestein, Lonestein.